Bible, you can open to the book of Philippians, which is where we'll be this morning, taking a little break from Luke just for today, and then uh, we'll be back in it next week. We'll be getting into Jesus's Olivet Discourse, which I have to say is uh, it's a tough passage uh, to preach, so you can keep me in prayer during my uh, preparation for that over the next few weeks. It'll take us some time to get through it, but before we get into that, I want to just take a, a moment in light of the festive weekend that we have to uh, jump into Philippians 3. I figure we might have quite a few people out of town today, and we do, so I didn't want to start the Olivet Discourse, and then they all show up here next week with no clue about what's going on, uh, because you kind of need to be along for the ride from the start on, on, on Jesus' uh, words there in Luke 21, starting in verse 5. So we'll do that next week. But uh, for today, Philippians 3 is where we are at. Uh, sometimes you go to a place that you've never been, and it feels incredibly welcoming, and it just kind of feels like home uh, right away. I see Chuck Hedden over there. He says that about my living room, okay? Every time he comes over, he's like, I just feel at home in this living room, so I appreciate that. Uh, I felt that way when I went to Canton, Ohio for the first time. Uh, me and my friend uh, Kenny Van Horn got in a car last year, and we drove up to the Pro Football Hall of Fame and uh, we really just were there for the Hall of Fame. What we didn't know is we'd fall in love with like this little Ohio Midwestern town. Like it's just everybody there was nice. There were donuts like flowing like milk and honey in that town. It was just every, everything was just nice and wonderful. And, and we both walked away from there and like, man, we, we could do this. Um, I could live in a place like this, you know. When we went to El Salvador for the first time as a mission team, uh, it was clear that we were, we were not at home, and we were not from around there. Uh, we had a rest day at the end, and we went to the beach to relax, and, uh, you know, we got there, and most of us had never been to El Salvador before in our lives, and so we uh, were very excited to just, you know, run full speed into the Pacific Ocean. We didn't look around, we just went for it, and uh, within five minutes, one of our team members had lost their pants to the force of the waves, another one nearly drowned, and the rest of us were just holding on to each other, just, you know, uh, trying not to fall. The water was only like this high, but it was so violent, and there were these giant rocks uh, underneath that were like pounding our ankles that people are, I just remember looking around, it was like a bad action movie, you know, like the end of Titanic or something, and people are like, ah! You know, so uh, we all got out, we sit down on the shore, and we're all just like, <laughs> you know, catching our breath. Like, that was a crazy five minutes. And we look up, and all the El Salvadorans are watching us from the ridge. Like, you know, and we realize the only people really swimming in the water have wetsuits on and appear to be very good at surfing. So it's not really just an ocean you swim in, you know. That's why they had these man-made pools up on the ridge that would get filled with ocean water where you could safely swim. So they were looking at all these gringos down there in the, on the beach, and it was very clear to all of those people that we were not from around there, that we were not in our home, right? So uh, as believers, this is not our home. There are a few places in the New Testament where that's dictated to us clearly. Uh, John 14 would be one where Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, where I am you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. If Jesus is going to prepare a place for us, and he's coming again to take us to that place, what that means is that's the place we want to be permanently, and that this place is not our final destination. 
In Hebrews 13, verse 14, the Bible says, For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. So no permanent address here on the earth, right? I've got a number on my mailbox, but that is not my ultimate destination. That is not my ultimate home. First uh, Peter 2, verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Strangers and exiles, like, like expatriates in a foreign land, right? We're like immigrants in a place that we don't intend on staying. So with those passages in mind, I want to say that as we rightly celebrate the 4th of July, um, and, and we rightly celebrate the freedom we have and the sacrifices that were made to provide that freedom, I feel it's also my job to kind of come alongside every couple of years just to remind us that as much as we love this place and as much as we love this nation, as much as we love the union uh, that we are seeking to preserve, that this is not our home. That our primary citizenship that we must be concerned about is not our natural citizenship. Our primary uh, citizenship we must be concerned about is our heavenly citizenship. A supernatural citizenship has been given to us by God. Now the reason I wanted to take this detour into Philippians and hang out there is because Paul speaks to the issue plainly in Philippians 3 verses 20 through 21. Philippi was a colony of Rome. And when they built it, they actually made it to look like Rome. So a lot of people called it like Little Rome. It was like a little mini Rome. When people visited Philippi, they would be blown away by how much it looked like Rome itself. And the people that lived there were very proud of the fact that it was a Little Rome. And that's because there was a Roman civil war following the death of Julius Caesar, and his heirs, Mark Antony and Octavian, went to the people that assassinated Caesar, and uh, they fought them. And the Battle of Philippi ensued in 42 BC. After Antony and Octavian were successful and they won the battle, they took a portion of their retired military veterans, their retired Roman soldiers, and they tasked them with colonizing the city. I said, all right, we won this city, we're going to build it back up, and we want you guys, our soldiers and your families, to be the ones that really colonize the city. And so men who had defended the great name of Julius Caesar, right, who had shed blood for the very idea of Rome, are the ones that built Philippi. So it was a city that was uh, saturated with all sorts of Roman pride. So Paul, writing from prison, says to this people who have been converted to Christ and, and who are part now of the church at Philippi, uh, he, he speaks to them about their citizenship in heaven. And I think that it is an appropriate text for us today uh, as American people who are preparing to celebrate our independence and our freedom uh, tomorrow. So let me read for us Philippians 3, starting in verse uh, twenty. Starting in verse 20, that's where we're going to be. All right. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Father, I pray that this, uh, this preached word would come into our hearts, Lord, and uh, that it would be good uh, for 
uh, for our Christian living, God, that we would look more like your son because we obey uh, the word that is preached today. But I also pray, God, that it would pass from our hearts to our mouths and into conversations and that uh, it would, what we learn today would be a part of our witness as we seek to honor you, Lord, in, in this lost world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First point, if you're taking uh, notes this morning, our first teaching point is this. Gospel citizens belong to a heavenly colony. All right, we'll say that right off uh, the bat this morning. Gospel citizens belong to a heavenly colony. In the same way that Philippi is this remote colony of Rome, the church on earth is a remote colony of heaven. Philippi was there in northeast of Macedonia, and it represented Roman values and Roman glory to the people there. It was a stronghold for the Roman Empire. It showed the rest of the region, this is what Rome is like. And the church on earth represents the values and the glory of the Lord and His kingdom to the world. The church here on earth shows the world what the kingdom of God is like. And what that means for us is there are times as ambassadors of Christ, as there's times as representatives of Christ, as citizens of the heavenly colony here on earth, that we must separate, and then there are times that we represent. So, in a sense, when we say that we are citizens of a heavenly colony, that means that the church must be separate from the earthly colony. God has always separated His people from the culture that is around them to an extent. For example, you can look to Isaiah 52. When God disciplined Israel and the Babylonian captivity ensued, a portion of the Israelites ran down to Egypt for refuge. And as the Babylonian captivity is ending, Isaiah 52 uh, records God speaking to them and giving them instructions for how they are to leave Egypt and come back home. And he says to them there in verse 11, Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, meaning Egypt. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. So you see the call for separation there, right? Go out. Don't touch anything. Leave Egypt. Don't try to take the pagan stuff with you on your way out. Purify yourself. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul actually quotes from Isaiah 52.11, emphasizing how believers should not be in partnership with the world. He says there, Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. And the point in Isaiah and in 2 Corinthians is this, is that as citizens of a heavenly kingdom... And citizens of a heavenly colony, there's going to be times we have to separate ourselves from the earthly kingdom and the earthly colonies. There's times where we can't go along. Now, that's not always the case. When Jesus prayed for us, He prayed for us who are in the world, but not of the world. So there are aspects of our lives where we engage with the world just like unbelievers. Meaning, we go to restaurants. You know what I mean? We're not like, well, we can't participate in the evil world system, so I'm not going to eat at Applebee's. You know, like, no, we go to restaurants, we attend sporting events, we watch singing competitions on our TVs, maybe, I don't know. We invest in the stock market, right? We don't live in ivory towers like hermits, never engaging with the culture around us because we'd never fulfill the Great Commission like that. Right? We, we would never reach anybody with the gospel. We'd never see anybody come to Christ. 
And yet, there are instances in which we must separate ourselves from the kingdom of this world. So I want to look, we're about to, we're about to have the 4th of July. Let me look back on June. Let's look back on the festivities of June, okay? On June 19th each year, we have what is called Juneteenth. It's a day that commemorates when troops arrived in Galveston, Texas, and two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed into effect, the final slaves were freed. This is a day that as Christians, we can join in and we can celebrate with the rest of the country on, right? As Christians, we're like, yeah, human bondage is bad. The transatlantic slave trade was bad. We don't think anybody should be trapped in slavery like that. It's a good thing to us that our country ended that atrocity and that those final slaves were freed. And so we can come alongside with other, uh, with black Americans who are celebrating this and other Americans who are celebrating this, and we can say, absolutely, no need to separate there. And yet, during the same month, the whole country celebrated Pride Month. And I say the whole country because if you walk through Patrick Henry Mall, you'd have to work so hard to find a store that didn't have rainbow-branded signage in the front window. Corporate America has decided they're all in on Pride Month. Many Americans have decided they're all in on Pride Month. As believers, we have scriptures that tell us clearly that, the, the, that God created us male and female, right? That, that uh, scriptures that are clear about sexual ethics and that sex is reserved for a covenant relationship between a man and a woman within the confines of a marriage. And, and so as the world around us is embracing pride during the month of June, we can't go along, right? That, that's a celebration that we go, man, we can't roll with you guys on that. Because the teachings of our Lord call us to stay back here, so we have to separate. And as we separate in this manner, our separation becomes a witness about who we belong to. Our separation becomes a witness about where our citizenship truly lies. Because there are many who might say, what do you mean you can't celebrate Pride Month? To celebrate Pride Month is to be American at this point, right? There are those that would make that argument, and we would have to look at them and say, well, my citizenship doesn't truly lie here. This isn't the first citizenship that I'm concerned with. My number one concern is that I belong to a heavenly colony and my king has told me that I cannot go alone. And what that means is there's times in which we must leave the culture, we just allow the culture to leave us. We touch no unclean thing, we purify ourselves by listening to Christ and his word, we obey him instead of listening to the values of culture and, and, and adopting those values. Now let me say this as well, while there's times that we must separate, you gotta remember that you need to separate in love. In love. The world has no clue on how to separate in love. Oh, you won't go along with me? Well, you're dead to me. I hate you, right? That is what, how the world responds. I remember after the 2020 election, the election ends and political commentator and bona fide fool, Keith Olbermann, uh, he, he gets on TV and says, every Trump supporter needs to be locked up. We can't just end this election and move on. Lock them all up. And I thought, that's a great way to heal the nation, buddy. I mean, come on, man. Get off the TV and be quiet. Like, that's crazy, right? That's crazy, but that's the world. They're like, oh, you don't want to be a part of what I'm doing? Well, then you're dead to me. You're out. They, they practice separation in bitterness and in hatred. We do it in tears. Right? We do it in tears. Because as we separate, we're pleading and we're praying for the souls of those that, 
do go on ahead of us in lockstep with the culture. So if you need to separate at times, separate, but separate with love and grace. Keep your Christ-like character and your witness intact as you separate. Don't try to burn the bridges that the lost people are standing on on your way out. That being established, in one sense we separate, and in another sense we represent. We are Christ's ambassadors in the world, and and part of our, our role in that identity is to represent Jesus to the world until he returns. So this is not our home. I love the United States of America. I still believe, and I think you can say this without being some sort of weird xenophobe, okay? I still believe this is the greatest country in the world. Um, Do we always live up to our ideals? Absolutely not. Man, we fail pretty regularly, right? It's it's a fallen nation, okay? But I I still believe in it. I still believe in democracy. I still believe democracy democracy is the best form of government that human beings have come up with. Is it fallen? Is it perfect? Of course it's fallen. Of course it's not perfect. But I think it's the best thing we've been able to come up with with our little finite minds, right? I, I believe all that. As much as I love this country, it's not my home. My home is firmly located in the kingdom to come. Your home is in the presence of Christ in the new heaven and on the new earth. And, and in the meantime, till we get to that home, we represent Jesus as his ambassadors here in this world, which is like a foreign land to us. Which is why Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. So some of the ways in which we are representative ambassadors comes in in us saying what we are for. People should see us represent Christ and know that we are for the worship of Christ. And we are for the spread of the message of the gospel. We are for justice and fairness because we serve a God of justice and fairness. We are for the care of the poor and the needy because we see so much in the scriptures telling us to care for the poor and the needy. We are for one another in the sense that we love one another as he has loved us. And if we are for these things, we'll be distinctly different from the world that has uh, a a totally uh, different value system, right? A foreign value system to what we see in the Scriptures. But again, some of the ways that we represent is going to be saying what we're for, and there's also going to be times in which they will know what we represent because of what we separate from. When we say, in light of what God has said, we can't go with you. In Philippians 1.27, Paul says, Just one thing, citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. He repeats that same sentiment here in chapter 3, verse 20, when he tells the Philippians their citizenship is in heaven. They were Roman, man. They were proud of it. But he's reminding them that they are Christian first. Their identity is in Christ first. And so for us, you might be American, you might be proud of it. You might be American as American. You kind of just want to go along with everything that America is doing, whether it's biblical or not. But we have to remember, whether it comes to the pride that we have in our citizenship or our desire to go along, that our citizenship first and foremost lies in heaven and we must represent that kingdom well. Let's keep going. Second point. We see it also in verse 20. Gospel citizens find hope in Christ as Savior. We find hope in Christ as Savior. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await uh, a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ. 
might seem obvious to say that the church hopes in Jesus as her Savior, but we can easily get off the track and lose the plot with that. What Paul is saying is that as colony people, as kingdom people, we don't find hope in the people of this world or in the things of this world. We find hope in Jesus. And we're waiting on the moment when He comes back to make all things right and He's going to sit on His throne forever. And that's the most important inauguration that anybody in this room is ever going to attend or be witness to, right? But I think often, instead of hoping in that, hoping hoping in the ultimate supreme rule of Christ, hoping in His return and Him making all things right, we tend to look around and, and, and put our hope in the things of the earth. Now, of course, when I say that, there's the usual suspects, right? P- people um, make idols out of other people, out of material possessions, out of wealth, out of success. But it's Fourth of July weekend, so let's be real specific about an idol that is so American, and that is the idol of the Almighty Self. The great hope of our postmodern America is the hope within. The self, the authentic self, the individual. There's other idols in American life. There's the idol of of politics, and there's the idol of celebrity, and there's the idol of sex. But our unhealthy relationship with those idols stem from the hope that we place at the feet of Almighty Self. Here's Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor talking about authenticity. He says, the culture of authenticity is one where each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and live out one's own, as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. In other words, there was a time in which people looked to government and they said, hey, Uncle Sam, tell me who I am. Tell, tell me who I am. Define me. I'm struggling to figure it out. Define me. Or they would go to the church and they would say, Pastor, I'm struggling to figure out who I am. Define me. Or they would go inside of the family to mom and dad and say, I'm struggling to figure out who I am. Define me. These were always the, the main institutions in American life, right? The government and church and family. It's about as Boy Scout as it gets. But people aren't doing that anymore. People don't run to the church or the government, which may be a good thing, right? Uh, or, Or the family to try to find out who they are. Our culture has told us what we need to do if we want to know who we are. You need to look within. You need to get in touch with your feelings, and then you need to line reality up with how you feel. Charles Taylor, that quote that I just read, he's not one of our prophets. He's from the world. This is their game plan for happiness. Robert Bella, another one of their prophets, says expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. You ever going to be your true self? You must look within. This is where hope is found, in being the authentic you. How did we get to a place where parents are being threatened as being a threat to their own child by the state if they refuse to support a child's desire to change their God-given gender. This is how we got there. 
Because the individual self has become almighty in our culture, and if you stand in the way of someone's express individualism, you're standing in the way of them discovering their true self and them being truly happy. What if freedom of religion gets in the way of someone discovering their true self? What if the freedom of speech gets in the way of some, someone discovering their true self? Well, those things might need to go the way of the dodo bird, too. Here's Carl Truman on this. He's one of our prophets. Old notions such as the sanctity of life and the importance of freedom of religion and speech have been transformed, even inverted, by this new modern self. And all this is because the notion of happiness with which we now intuitively operate is one where a sense of personal, psychological well-being is central. We might say that happiness is for each of us, first and foremost, an individual thing, resting upon us, being independent. All other relationships must serve that end or be seen as oppressive. The message that our kids and our, our grandkids are being bombarded with, the message we're being bombarded with, is bow down and find your happiness at the altar of self and help other people do the same. This is the gospel of TikTok. And if you don't, well, you're the problem. You're the reason people feel hopeless. Because if self is the great hope of America and you get in the way of people pursuing that recklessly, no matter the consequence, then their hopelessness becomes a result of your transgression, your refusal to go along. I want to say, don't assume you're immune to this stuff. Don't assume, well, yeah, I walk around in this culture, but I don't worship at the, the altar of self. That's what they do, right? That's not what I do you got to recognize you're just as prone to placing your hope in the wrong place as anybody else. We're all prone to wander, right? That's what the old hymn says. And, and we are certainly more than capable of wandering off into the jungles of self-worship and exalting ourselves to the throne of our hearts. And if you want proof that this mindset has taken over in the American church, then just stand outside of churches as the service ends and as people walk out and listen and see how many of them say, well, I just didn't really get anything out of that. Or, you know, I like today because I really got something out of that. But how often do we really stop and think as we leave these doors, did Jesus get something out of that? We don't really jump to that question because we're swimming around in this culture that says it's all about you. These Roman citizens were living in Philippi. They had a host of privileges that were uh, revolutionary. They could vote, which was crazy. They could stand for public office, also crazy in most parts of the world at that time, so crazy in many parts of the world now that someone could just decide they wanted to stand for public office. But that was the society that they lived in. That was a privilege they enjoyed. They could hold property. They could make contracts. They had basic human rights. They could have lawful marriages. They could take each other to court and sue each other. They had a right to a legal trial. And so they were proud of these things as Romans. Most people in the world didn't have these privileges, so they were like, man, this is awesome. But they were also in danger of placing their hope in that empire, of making their identity all about those privileges, not finding their identity in the king, not putting their hope in the kingdom. Everything in their culture told them, just like we're being told, self is most important. Self is most important. What they were hearing is being Roman is most important. Being Roman is most important. And here's Paul saying to them, no, the most important thing about you is that you belong to Jesus, not Caesar. 
And the most important thing about you is not your true authentic self. It's the fact that you've been made in the image of God. And that He desires a relationship with you. And that He took unprecedented measures to establish that relationship by sending His Son to die on the cross and to suffer in your place. That's the most important thing about you. And if you're here this morning and you've repented of your sin and you've put your faith in Christ, that's the most important thing about you. So we cannot listen to the voices of culture. We cannot be swayed by the winds of culture, no matter how strong they may be. The Bible tells us where hope is found. It's not in being Roman. It's not in self. It's not in being American. It's found in Christ alone. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope. And the source of our hope is not within, and it's also not in Washington. The source of our hope is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. And one day our hope will appear again when Christ returns and He takes us to our true home. And until then, we must strive to not be fooled by the counterfeits. Instead, we show the world that our citizenship is in heaven by keeping our eyes fixed on the things that are above and not on the things that are below. People should be able to tell who you represent and who you belong to by where you keep your eyes, by what you're hoping in. Would people be confused about the source of your hope because if they look at your life, it looks like you pretty much hope in all the same stuff that they do? Or would they look at your life and go, man, it seems like you, you are hitching your wagon, right? You're, you're putting your, all your eggs in a basket that's foreign, foreign to this world. There's something supernatural going on in, in, in your life. I see the, the results in your life, and it tells me that the cause has got to be something that's different than what I'm dealing with over here, what I'm basing my life on. What we put our hope in and the way we live that out it should draw attention to the source of our hope. It should draw attention to Jesus. So the church is a colony of heaven. The church finds hope in her Savior. And now uh, we get to verse 21 where it says, He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. So final point uh, this morning is this, that gospel citizens have a transformed future. Gospel citizens have a transformed future. A lot of times I'll talk to, to some of you, particularly people, like my dad says it all the time. Okay, I'll talk to my dad on the phone, and all the time my dad says, I worry about the type of country my grandkids are going to grow up in. He's always like, you, your, your generation... You will probably, it'll, it'll still keep some semblance of the America that we knew. He's like, but I don't know what it looks like for Beckett and Everett. And he's like, I just hope Jesus comes back before then. That's what my dad always says stuff like that uh, to me. Always thinking about his grandkids. I know many of you think that way, and you've said those things to me as well. Pastor, I just don't know what sort of country this is going to be for my grandkids. Well, I don't know either. I don't. I have no clue. I cannot offer you any sort of solace there this morning. I really can't. I can't look at you and say, well, you know, the, the pendulum swings. Listen, what we've seen in the last 20 years and how fast our culture has thrown tradition, uh, tr th things like um, traditional marriage away, 
okay, um, uh, traditional views on the family away, like how fast we have just thrown those things out. No culture in the history of earth has thrown things out this quickly. Technology and the internet has just accelerated this thing. So I can offer you no solace this morning. I can't look at you and say, well, listen, America's going to be like this. I can't tell you that. But I can look at verse 21 and say, I don't know about this kingdom, but I know about God's kingdom. We do not need to be concerned about the future of God's kingdom. The future of the kingdom and the future of the church is a future of transformation. The transformation's already begun, right? If you're a believer, I hope you can look back to when you were converted and say, yeah, you know, whether that was when you were seven or you were 37 or 57, like you can look back and say, yeah, I can see a progression of holiness. I mean, I'm still fighting the same battles, but I fight them in different ways, or I've had victories over some battles, and I've got some new battles that I'm dealing with, right? As a believer, you deal with some of that external stuff, and then God's like, all right, that's great. You stopped cussing. Now let's talk about the intentions of your thoughts before you speak. You know what I mean? Like, he, he just keeps going on in, and he just, just trying to separate you from that sin and make you more like Christ. So this process of sanctification, this transformation is already happening in the church. So in one sense, it's already, right? But it's also not yet. Because the transformation that we have experienced now in sanctification, it's just a taste, right? There's a bigger transformation coming. Because Jesus is going to return, and He's going to resurrect His people, and our lowly, humble, broken-down bodies are going to be transformed. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15.49, And just as we have been born uh, the image of the man made of dust, we also bear the image of the heavenly man. Meaning, from birth, you looked just like sinning Adam, but Jesus has saved you. He's making you more like, his son, or more like Himself, right? Uh, the, the Father's making you more like uh, the Son. And then, one day, this time's going to come where sin is going to be completely separated from you. You will be transformed, and you will not look like Adam at all. You're going to resemble Jesus. 1 John uh, 3, verses 2 and 3. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not uh, yet been revealed. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. This hope of transformation is a concrete hope because it's rooted in the power of God. It is as sure as as the power of God is perfect. Isn't that what Paul is saying? By the very power that God uses to subject all things to Himself, right? We, we see that in Philippians 3, verse 21. By that very power, He's going to transform us. And this hope should motivate us to love Him more. See, that, that's the thing about the hope that the world offers. Look within, look within. If you look within yourself for hope, what's going to happen is you are just going to dive further into sin, further into brokenness. You're going to be chasing after idol after idol, trying to fix yourself, all the while diving further and further into brokenness, continuing to suppress the truth so you can continue on in your unrighteousness, right? That's what happens if you try to cling to the hope of this 
this world. You won't be purified. You'll be more and more broken and beaten down by it. But what we see at the end of 1 John is when we put our hope in Jesus, we are purified. Putting our hope in Jesus takes us away from sin and draws us closer to Jesus. So the more you hope in Christ, the closer you get to Christ. The further away you get from sin and the more you're motivated to love him more. Why would you not love him more? Because the more I hope in him, the more I go, wow, I, I put my hope in Christ, therefore I don't have to worry about my future. Jesus, I love you for, for giving me a life where I don't have to worry about my future. Do you see how that works? It's a purifying hope. It's a, a hope where our eyes are fixed on what's to come, and yet we're able to live for Christ in the here and now because we're compelled to do that by that hope. We're compelled to love Him with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So to keep that hope of future, resur- of future resurrection, future transformation out in front of us is just going to draw us in to love the Lord even more. To love the church as, as Christ loves the church. So as we wait on future transformation, the complete and final transformation, we're already being transformed, and as we hope in Christ and in future glory, He's using that hope to make us more like Christ, and He compels us to love and serve Him. So you might be concerned for the future of America. The only solace I can offer you, I said I have no solace to offer you, I do have one, one bit of solace to offer you, that you can pray for your country and that the Bible encourages you to pray for the leaders of your country. So you can do that and you can find peace from prayer and that's about all I have to offer you about the future of the country. Because I just don't know. But the future of the church, the future of the kingdom, you don't need to worry about it. The Lord has told us how things are going to end. No matter what happens for this great country that we live in, it's going to be glory for the church. And so our primary concern then should be what? Convincing people to be a Republican or a Democrat? No. Getting people in the church. That should be our number one concern, right? Let's get people in the church. Let's get people in the kingdom. We, we, can't, we can't with any confidence say we know what, what, what the, the future of America is. We, we don't know. We know what the future of the kingdom is. So our number one concern as believers should be to get people into the kingdom. We've got VBS coming up in a couple of weeks. Why do we do that? Why do we all cancel our plans for five straight nights and we come up here and we walk through the hallways and march with these kids and chant and I'm going to wear a silly outfit and we're going to sing songs we would never sing you know, the other 360 days of the year, right? Well, some of you are going to keep singing them because your kids are going to keep singing them, but you know what I mean. We do it because we want to get people in the kingdom because we recognize Silver or gold we do not have, but we offer them Jesus Christ. And we offer them a kingdom that we are sure about because of what the Bible has told us. You know, famously, um, Benjamin Franklin was asked as they wrapped up, I believe the First Continental Congress, I am not up on my American history, so if I got that wrong, don't come for me, okay? Um, I know we have the kids in with us this morning. Ask your parents to Google it to confirm, okay? But I believe that it was after the First Continental Congress, they said, basically, you know, what do we have here? He said, a union if you can keep it. It's a union if you can keep it, right? Should you be concerned about preserving the union? I, I think that there is a biblical mandate to be a good citizen, to be concerned about preserving the union, yes. But it's not your primary concern. You seek the kingdom first, and all these things will be added unto us. 
seek the kingdom and seek the king. We're citizens of a heavenly colony. Our hope is in our Savior Jesus and no one else. Our future is transformation. This gives us a pretty good snapshot of what life is like for believers. A pretty good portrait of the mindset of kingdom people. So as you set off fireworks tomorrow and you grill burgers and do whatever you're going to do, fight the masses down at Yorktown Beach, remember that you're still an alien here and you're still a sojourner here and you're a kingdom person waiting on the abiding city that is to come. And keep this quote in mind. I want to share this quote, one more from Carl Truman as we close. The world in which we live seems to be entering a new, chaotic, uncharted, and dark era. But we should not despair. We need to prepare ourselves, be informed, know what we believe and why we believe it, worship God in a manner that forms us as true disciples and pilgrims, intellectually and intuitively, and keep before our eyes the unbreakable promises that the Lord has made and confirmed in Jesus Christ. This is not a time for hopeless despair nor naive optimism. Yes, let us lament the ravages of the fall as they play out in the distinctive ways that our generation has chosen. But let that lamentation be the context for sharpening our identity as the people of God and our hunger for the great consummation that awaits at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Let's live lives that show the world we're not from around here, but we would love for them to see our home and to meet our King. And let's be His workmanship. The band's going to come back up. Our worship team, Pastor Ben, to lead us in a final song as they come. If this all seems crazy to you, because you're like, I've never even considered the fact that there would be another kingdom that would be more important than the kingdom of America. Um, and, and maybe you don't know the Lord. The reason you never considered it is that you're not a part of that kingdom. I want to say that I'd love to speak with you. Pastor David actually would be at the pastor's table in the back when things uh, end. Pastor David's going to raise his hand real fast. That's him. If you'd like to speak with him, he'll be back there. He would love to answer questions you have. But you can also uh, get with us, connect at SeafordBaptist.com. Text or uh, email us there at that address, connect at SeafordBaptist.com. We'll get it and we'll answer any questions you have about the gospel, the Bible, the message today, uh, and, and certainly about knowing uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. So consider it, because, man, if you think America's great, if you love being a citizen here and fireworks and all that stuff, you, you got no idea. The, the kingdom of heaven is infinitely greater. And, uh, man, is it a joy to be a part of. Let's pray together. Father, help us to keep our hope in the right place, to keep our eyes in the right place, and help us to not take them off of your Son. I pray that even tomorrow as we do our celebrating and we... Um, we rejoice in so many of the privileges and the rights that you've given us in this great country. Um, Lord, I pray that we would not do that uh, apart from you, that uh, we would worshipfully celebrate, recognizing that all these things have been given to us from above. And um, as we go forward from uh, tomorrow and we strive to try to make this place we live in a better nation and a better country through our prayers, through our voting, and through our participation, Lord, uh, again, I pray that we would not do that acting as if this country is our only hope, but that we would do it um, even as a means to an end um, so that we could be a witness for you here. So, uh, Lord, just help us to keep our heads screwed on straight, keep our priorities straight, and to not get out of whack because it's so easy, Lord, to not uh, fall for the message of the culture, to not fall for the message of, that our own hearts want to preach at times, but instead that um, we would cling to your words and obey them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.